Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. ever thought about why people act the way they do? Why are some people more difficult to deal with, while others are always pleasant? Let's find out together. Welcome to Human Behavior. What a trip. Your host is Dr. Jonathan Brower. Our program combines expert guests with people just like you who have questions or comments. We'll have fun exploring human behavior. Now, here's your host, Dr. Jonathan Brower. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Jonathan Brower. And my show is called Human Behavior, What a Trip. And we have an interesting trip today. Our guest is Joseph Scott Morgan. And uh, he's worked as a medical legal death investigator in Atlanta and New Orleans, investigating gruesome scenes Hollywood producers could never dream up. He's seen the impact death leaves behind, both on the loved ones of the victims and the people who spend their lives investigating the tragedies. So, uh, welcome to the show, Mr. Joseph Scott Morgan. Hey, Jonathan. How are you? Uh, hello to all of your guests. Yes, so I'm going to be Jonathan. You're going to be Joseph. And um, before we get into the actual meat of the show, uh, tell us a little bit about you growing up and what it was like and how that impacted you for the job you had. Yeah, sure. I'll be glad to. Uh, first off, I, I live in the South. I've lived in the South my entire life. I was born, uh, in a relatively, uh, uh, uh lower socioeconomic standing, uh, in northern Louisiana. What year were you born? Yeah, I was born in 1964. 1964. Uh, okay. 1964 in a little town called, uh, well, it's not really little. It's a town called Monroe, Louisiana. Yeah. Uh, I was born to, uh, to teenage parents, uh, my uh, my father uh, was a very rage filled uh, uh, man who had a proclivity for uh, imbibing in alcohol. Uh, yes. And uh, I say man, he was he was only eighteen when I was born. Um, he but early on he showed very violent tendencies. Even even when I was in utero, uh, my my biological father tried to induce. Uh, uh, induced a spontaneous abortion by kicking my mother in the stomach. Wow, uh, yeah, we lived we lived with my grandmother, and um, uh, we didn't have very much money uh, growing up. Uh, uh, when I was about five, uh, my dad um, arrived at my grandparents' house, and um, he attempted to to uh, to kill our whole family. He was going to shotgun us, and uh, wow. my grandmother at that at that point in time hid me beneath the bed. A very southern gothic kind of kind of beginning. Um, you know, I have images of her, you know, kneeling beside the bed in prayer as uh, as my father kind of threw furniture up against the outside of our our old home. He was roaring drunk, 
my grandfather uh, talking to himself in the adjacent room and me just in pure terror. And anyway, like me, in many situations back in the 60s, they gave they gave my father a choice. Uh, uh, they said, look, it was during the Vietnam War, you either, you either go to the penitentiary or uh, you join the Marine Corps. And so he chose, chose to join the Marine Corps. And um, when he finally mustered out, came out of the Marine Corps, he moved us, my mother and I, to Georgia, uh, where he promptly abandoned us. And uh, uh, during that period of time, my mother... Uh, my mother chose to uh, to marry a man who was uh, 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 hyper suffered from you know just this hyper religiosity. Uh, he uh, uh, was very manic about it. Uh, um, thought that uh, God was was in all of the details, and uh-huh. it turned out my life the devil turned out to be in the details. He uh, he was highly abusive, almost bordering on uh, uh, sadistic behavior. I was beaten every day. Excuse so, me. Is this, is this, excuse me. Is, is this your your uh, biological father or a second father? No, this is my stepfather. My father abandoned us. Uh, I when see. You so you got it from both fathers. Uh, I'm sorry, I couldn't understand, Jonathan. So you, so both fathers, your biological father, your stepfather, were very rageful and High, highly, highly abusive. Yeah, yeah, highly abusive. And you know, I kind of uh, looking back. Uh, Retrospectively, I kind of, I kind of took, uh, took this tone in my life of, of being a protector. Being uh-huh. a protector of my mother, I think that this is a very common trait you find in children of abuse and, uh, children of alcoholism. Yes. Um, and I kind of, uh, in a, in an odd sort of way, I had this almost, uh, pre-existing, if this, this is kind of odd sounding, kind of pre-existing patina of death that kind of, lingered on our family. My, I was actually named uh, after my great uncle, who was a homicide victim. He yes. was a union leader in the South and was killed by a disgruntled union member. And so, uh, you know, I had this kind of legacy within my family of, of death and this kind of always being fearful. And yes. even as a child, I remember, you know, thinking that I used to, you know, growing up in this heavy, very heavy-handed Southern evangelical environment, I always had this thought, this thought in mind, is in my very childlike mind, that God was allowing all of the bad things to happen to me early in my life because I, I would rationalize by saying that all the good stuff was going to happen to me later on in my life. Yes. And, um, and you know, it, I was, it was a perfect storm. As I grew to maturity, uh, I, uh, I segued in as a very, very young man. As a matter of fact, when I was hired, I was the youngest medical legal death investigator in the United States at the time, working in a major metropolitan area, and that was in New Orleans. I was working for the coroner's office at Jefferson Parish, and I was entrusted with a huge amount of responsibility. I had a forensic pathologist that took me under his wing, uh, worked with me in the morgue, taught me how to dissect bodies, and then I learned how to uh, work as a medical legal death investigator in the field. Uh-huh. And um, had a, uh, It was a great place to learn and train, but, you know, in that environment, I saw myself doing a job and accomplishing a task that I perceived that no one else in the world was equipped to. And I think this this perception of myself came from uh, the idea that I had been through so much as a child. I would uh, there's a chapter in my book, Blood Beneath My Feet, that I talk about uh, my relationship with my stepfather, and I would say, you know, um, I have a, a moated, uh, bloated, decomposing body. I can handle this. It's not Bruce. 
who was my, who was my stepfather, uh, you know, I have uh, multiple homicides. It's so horrific, but I can handle this. It's not Bruce. So I would hold that up as a template, never really realizing that all the while, death was really whittling away at my emotional health, uh, my spiritual health, and my physical health. In the end, death, death almost claimed me uh, because I, I did. I de facto became death's interpreter, and it's yes. well the world for years and years. Yes. So clearly, your uh, your problems with your biological father, your stepfather, and how they were, in some ways, uh, helped you gravitate towards this particular job you had. Yeah, I like to think, and, and, you know, many times I'll sit around, you know, and, and for years I used to think, why in the world would I subject myself to to the occupation uh, that yes. I pursued? Because, you know, no one in their right mind of their own volition would, uh, would go straight away into the environment which I worked in day in and day out without a break. Uh, and, uh, think that they're going to come, come out with their psyche intact, uh, because it is so horrific. Uh, people often think about the job that I would perform and try to equate me with like a homicide detective. Well, there's a huge, there's a gulf of difference. Homicide detectives, they have one interest and that is putting a bad guy in jail. Uh, as a medical legal death investigator, you're the eyes and ears of the, forensic pathologist in the field, you bear witness to all of those things that they don't see and yes. bring that information back into them so that they can do the autopsy. The contrary to what you see in Hollywood, forensic pathologists commonly do not go out on crime scenes. They do not go out on on uh, on death scenes. We're the yes. ones that do that. So, um, you know, and you can't, you know, there's no getting kitty cats out of trees like cops or finding lost children or rescuing some woman who's been beaten by her husband and, and bringing her, you know, uh, ushering her into a better way of life. It's yeah. death day in, day out, from the moment your, port, your feet hit the floor till, till, uh, till the end of your shift. So at the end of the day, would you be exhausted, emotionally exhausted? Yeah, many times uh, I would come home, uh, you know, and looking back on it now, and particularly after doing a lot of personal work and digging, I came to the conclusion, you know, that, that I was, uh, you know, just habitually depressed. Um, I, I, sought out, I sought out comfort in many different ways. Uh, you know, uh, I'm very candid about it in my book. Uh, I talked about alcohol in particular. Um, and, you know, uh, and even, even for the person involved in my line of work, um, alcohol is not enough to, to kind of death at the springs. Uh, you can't, you never can get past it. Yes. Uh, and in, in my field, I knew a lot of fellow colleagues that had horrible, horrible problems with, uh, chemical dependency, sexual addiction, um, uh, the chronic depression. Uh, even some suicidal ideation, those sorts of things. And it's because you're bearing a burden for society that society doesn't commonly think about. You know, the only time people really think about death is when the hearse, you know, drives by the street, drives down the street, and they're standing on the street corner. Yes. And, and still, they really don't give it much consideration. They don't ever yeah. think there will be them. Yeah. So how many years did you um, work as a medical legal death investigator? Uh, 21, 21 years. Um, I started out 
uh, in the early 80s. And uh, finally, my, my career ended in, uh, in uh, uh, the last time I left my office was in 2004. It was actually my, my, uh, my official end was in 2005 uh-huh. uh, in Atlanta. I started my career in New Orleans and wound up being the senior investigator with the Fulton County Medical Examiner's Office in Atlanta. Yeah. So um, in the early years, was it easier to do this job or was it harder? Which way was it? Did it get worse for you or better for uh, you? Or? I tell you, Jonathan, it, it was kind of, um, you know, it's like with any new job. I think the whole audience can identify with, you know, being nervous with any job that you start out in. Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, but I had already attained a, a kind of a comfort level with death already. I was volunteering in the morgue. I've been volunteering doing autopsies, um, and I felt relatively self-confident, uh, certainly from a medical standpoint, of uh, you know being able to interpret medical findings and be able to communicate those to physicians. Uh-huh. I think that probably some of my early anxieties uh, came about when I was tasked with hand- handling very high-profile cases, and not necessarily those cases that are going to make it into the news day in and day out, but cases that had a lot of riding on it where you had a homicide and you knew the thing was going to go to trial. Um, I, I had, uh, you know, I had some butterflies over those temporarily, but even after a while, those began to vanish. However, um, there, there is this ever-present uh, dread uh, that, that comes about with uh, with each shift that you work, and I described it yes. to a friend of mine that uh, you know the the one of the the most horrible things about being a medical legal death investigator is that the moment your shift ends, uh, you sit there and you begin contemplating the fact that you have to go back the next day and do it again, and it never. Yes. It never stops. Even if you have like a weekend break, I used to think we went to 10-hour shifts for a while where we were working four days a week. I used to think, well, this would be great. I'll have a, a three-day break, you know, in between when I, you know, when my weekends and when my week starts. And uh, even that didn't assuage the, the, the anxiety over it. I would spend those entire three days worrying over the fact and wringing my hands over the fact that I had to go back and face death again. And it's... Yes. Uh, it's a, it was a horrible, horrible way to live. And yes. going hand in hand with that, I have people that are surrounding me where I perfected my craft and I've become really good at it. I had a lot of people that were patting me on my back and telling me, wow, you're really good at this. You're great at this job. So you begin to think in your mind, what's my yeah. other option here? Obviously, I'm predestined to do this, you know. But yeah. yet, all the while, you're fighting this this idea yeah. that you know you feel like death is 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 coming for you. I um, yeah. in my book, we're going to stop for a break. Legal Shield, total access. Everyone deserves legal protection. With Legal Shield, everyone can access it, no matter how traumatic or trivial. Check out players.buildinglastingsuccess.com and jjbrower.com. Call Jonathan at 805-535-5111.
DefeatAnxietyNow.com is geared to help people suffering with anxiety and depression. Intensive, short-term, dynamic psychotherapy helps many people get to the absolute core of their problems and resolve them. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Interested in investing in real estate, leveraging other people's money? Call Jonathan Brower and he can give you some more information. 805-535-5111. That's 805-535-5111. SportsPsychologySociology.com can help you improve your ability to excel and enjoy your athletic endeavors. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Human Behavior, What a Trip, with Dr. Jonathan Brower. If you have a question or comment for the show this week, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to jbrowerphd at yahoo.com. Now, back to Human Behavior, What a Trip. Hi, everybody. This is Jonathan Brower with my guest, Joseph Scott Morgan, and he's written a great book called Blood Beneath My Feet. The Journey of a Southern Death Investigator. You know, I talk about death from the perspective that if you've ever been to, and I know, uh, uh, you know, out on the West Coast, if you ever go up into the, the rocky coast of, of Oregon, and I'm fascinated by that area that has those, those huge, you know, cliffs and stones that are out in the water, and you... You look at those yeah. stones and you think about all the years that the water is pounded against those stones and the sand is blown against it and it's worn down. And the yes. stones very well might appear the same, but they're not. They're always ever-changing. Um, yes. Death is that way. It's, it's breath kind of blows across the investigator for for the entire career, and it, it never it never you never remain the same. And I know it sounds rather trite, uh, you know, for people to say, well, this has affected me and it, you know, things will never be the same. Well, just, just keep in mind, as a death investigator, as a medical legal death investigator, you bear witness. You, some, many times you're the only witness to, uh, to what, to all that remains of an individual that has passed away. Even their family is not there. Maybe the family abandoned them and left them a long time ago. And you're, you're the historian of record. You're the person that is going to document uh, as to whether or not this person was even here or not. Yes. That has a way of kind of infiltrating your mind as a death investigator. And in my book, Blood Beneath My Feet, I, I, uh, I kind of anthropomorphize death uh, because to me, death was not some kind of, uh, you know, wearing a Holocaust cloak and, you know, carrying a, a scythe with him. Uh, uh, he's, he's, it, it, it was like this entity in my life that would always ever presently remind me, would speak in my ear, and every death that I encountered, every person that I saw laying dead before my feet, um, my face began, over a period of time, become superimposed over that dead body. Death yes. would uh, kind of whisper in my ear, I can do this to you at any point in time I want to. And you begin to see all of these uh, all these variables, you know, the different 
bizarre ways that you see people die. And and uh, and the odd thing about it is, Jonathan, the the we we as as a group of practitioners are always having to view uh, to view the abnormal in the context of the normal. Okay, yeah. I'll give you a good example of that. Um, we we had, for instance, uh, many years ago, we had what was called the day trader shooting in Atlanta. Mark Barton came into a day trading office in in Atlanta, and uh, in the end, there were 16 people that were left dead. Um, you know, you can go down into a drug area and you can see a drive-by shooting, and, and and yeah, it's tragic and it's horrible. In that context, though, you don't, you know, you look at it and say, well, this is a drug dealer that's been involved in a homicide. You kind of, you know, you get, you know, you, you receive, you, you know, you reap, you sow and you reap. Yes. But when you walk into, say, like an office park and you see some lady sitting, sitting behind a desk or laying behind a desk in a business suit and she's got her, her shoes off like women do, you know, they'll sit at their desk and put slippers on or whatever. And she's got a perfect bullet hole right in the center of her polyester jacket and her computer screen is glowing there before you. You're looking at that and you're thinking, this is, this is surreal. This can't be happening. Yes. Or you go to the backyard of someone's home and their child has accidentally hung himself with a tire swing. Um, yes. you know, and, and you see these things and the public is not aware of them. They're, they're merely sound bites on the news. You know, they kind of move on from them. And as death investigators, we never truly get past that point. We can always have a remembrance of this. And it scars us. It scars us very, very deeply. And it scarred, it scarred me. Uh, for years and years, I've dealt with, with nightmares and recurrent dreams and, and even occasionally yes. flashbacks. It sounds horrendous, actually, for you to, to be involved in so much of this death stuff. So I'm curious, um, are you married and do you have any kids? Yes, yes, I am. Um, I'm married to probably the most tolerant woman in the world. Uh, Good for that. Who, Good. who was who was my absolute salvation during during all of this? She saw me go through a complete, total uh, mental breakdown, uh, uh-huh. and I have three lovely children, uh, and uh, I have a fourth son who who's now deceased and is no longer with us. Uh, my children went through. A lot of this career with me, and they bore witness to a father that uh, that couldn't couldn't even hold a fork because I had to shake so bad. Uh, yes. That would wander around the house and not be able to sleep, and and all of those those terrible things that come along. Uh, a father that was habitually chronically depressed yes. uh, bore witness to that, and I can't say that it didn't come come with a price for them as well. I know it did for for yes. my wife things that she had to see me uh, yes. go through, and she couldn't do anything about it other than just tell me that she loved me and that she would take care of me. And that's, that's, so that's so at, time, at times, would, would you and she talk about uh, how it was for you having this very burdensome job? Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's a, a, an interesting uh, little slice of life. I think uh, uh, when we, uh, we first we went out on our first date, uh, you know, she. You know, I told her what I what I did for a living and whatnot, and, and it was probably our third date. And you know, she's sitting across the table from me, uh, and uh, she looks at me and she says, uh, "You know, I." And this is this is very typical of the public at large. You know, she looks at me and says, "You know, I never thought about death until I met you." <laughs> you could kind of take that 
you can kind of take that as as you like. But the idea is that you know most people do not think about um, their end. They they, or they don't think about what happens to people when they pass on. And then when she signed on, you know, when she agreed to marry me, um, she suddenly was kind of bathed in this whole environment of. Uh, it's not really an environment of chaos. It's very controlled because death, uh, the death is there. It's ever present. It was never absent from our life. You know, a lot of yeah. guys come home from work, I'm sure, and they tell their life, uh, their wife about the horror, the terrible day they had at work, you know, in sales or whatever it is. And I had no one to talk to because, again, going back into that protector mode, there were a lot of times when I would tell my wife things and it would upset her so badly. But there were other times when I saw things that I would stuff down and suppress, and I couldn't because I wanted to protect her from it. You know, I didn't want to tell her yes. about dead babies. I didn't want to tell her about grandparents who had been killed by their grandchildren I, or, you know, neglected people. I didn't want to introduce that into, into her life. And so I kind of many times, to my own uh, fault, I, I, I bore that burden by myself and, uh, I would have been much better served if I had opened up, probably. But I think probably at that time, death had taken such a toll, I, I could have spilled my guts over everything that I'd seen, and uh, I was still uh, way beyond salvation uh, from an employment standpoint. Yeah. And do you have vivid memories of some of these particular people who you had to um, investigate after they've been dead? After they were dead? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they... I can recall things very, very easily. Uh, uh, it, uh, you would think that there would be some, um, you would think there would be some, like some layering, you know, like where people make statements like, well, it all runs together after a while. But there are cases that absolutely stand out in my mind that I remember in vivid detail. Uh-huh. Uh, I remember a lot of these horrible things in my mind um uh, in the same way that people probably remember the birth of their children or their first kiss or, you know, uh, their wedding or, or whatever it is, I have memories that are so, uh, the things that I witnessed were so horrible that they're emblazoned. They're emblazoned in my, in my gray matter. Yes. So, um, I, I'm, I'm reading some of your bio here. There was a time, uh, you were locked in a cooler with piles of decomposing humans? Yes, yeah. That, that sounds that, pretty ghastly. Yeah, yeah, it was. And, and you know, that's. I write a story. There's a chapter in, in the book, which the book is, is in fact, it's a memoir. A matter of fact, uh, uh, New York Times uh, bestselling author uh, Grant Jerkins, who's a friend of mine, read the book. And he told me when he read it, he said, I've never read anything like this. And uh, he wound up writing a, a blurb for my book, and uh, he said that he felt as though that, that I had created a new genre when I wrote this book. And he said, this is not just simply a memoir, it's a memoir. Uh, he said it harkens back to, you know, uh, Raymond Chandler, uh, but, in, uh, uh, but in a nonfiction manner. It's very dark. Uh, it has very strong kind of southern gothic overtones, uh-huh. uh, and I, I combined stories from my childhood, actually, with cases that I worked as an adult, and kind of bring it all back around. Uh, it's not a device that I was ever taught, because uh, I'm not a professional writer. Uh, it's uh, It was just something that I just naturally did, and, and uh, I've received quite a 
quite a uh, enthusiastic response as a result of, of what people have read. Um, but back to the story with uh, with the uh, uh, being being in the cooler with the, the bodies. Uh, you know that that case came about as a result of a hurricane that had capsized a barge in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, we received the bodies in New Orleans. We had like 16 of them. They were all unidentified. We had to do all kinds of procedures in order to try to get them identified. At the time that uh, this event occurred, our our refrigeration system in the morgue was broken. <laughs> and oh, so we actually had to uh, rent a refrigerated truck. And uh, and we we actually laid the bodies out in the back of the truck uh, while still conducting our regular everyday business. And I spent probably up to a week uh, in there uh, doing the things that we had to do with the bodies to try to get them identified. And um, just hang on to the earth pot. We're taking take another break. DefeatAnxietyNow.com is geared to help people suffering with anxiety and depression. Intensive, short-term, dynamic psychotherapy helps many people get to the absolute core of their problems and resolve them. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Interested in investing in real estate, leveraging other people's money? Call Jonathan Brower and he can give you some more information. 805-535-5111. That's 805-535-5111. SportsPsychologySociology.com can help you improve your ability to excel and enjoy your athletic endeavors. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. listening to Human Behavior, What a Trip, with Dr. Jonathan Brower. If you have a question or comment for the show this week, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to jbrowerphd at yahoo.com. Now, back to Human Behavior, What a Trip. Hi, everybody. This is Jonathan Brower with my guest, Joseph Scott Morgan, and he's written a great book called Blood Beneath My Feet, The Journey of a Southern Death Investigator. His job was for uh, 21 years was a medical legal death investigator, which uh, apparently was a very hard job to do. So, um, Joseph, but before the end of our last segment... You were talking about, um, I forget exactly what you're talking about. Oh, yeah, so you're talking about uh, decomposing human beings, blah, blah, blah. And you also mentioned here, some information I have from you, you have the occupational hazards of slipping and falling into a body's decomposing, decomposing, decomposing 
fluid. Right. Now, um, in some cases, that could be dangerous because if someone had, uh, let's say, AIDS, and you were in, in getting your body in their blood, that could be very dangerous for you, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I, actually, I was always more afraid of, of, of uh, all of the, the HEP viruses that are out there, uh, AIDS, Tends to be a very fragile virus. Uh, uh, we we dealt with a, a large you know a large community of IV drug abusers, uh, and uh, HEP and TB, particularly in Atlanta, were rampant. Uh, and that was uh, one of the things that I was always terribly fearful of, and tried yes. to take uh, extra precautions. Um, when uh, when uh, we were speaking last. Uh, 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 being in that environment, and it is a, a rather surreal environment. If uh, you know, if you were, you know, just say an everyday workaday Joe that's not used to this sort of thing, um, uh, you know, you uh, it's it's so shocking. But it's it's I think that it's very troubling in the fact that it became kind of a norm for me. Yeah. Um, when that particular event occurred, where I was in in the cooler in the in the uh, in the refrigerator truck. For so long with those bodies, uh, I was there by myself most of the time, uh, doing what I had to do. Uh, and uh, you know, after a while, uh, I would go home in the evenings, and I would you know just take two or three baths at home, uh, one in the evening, one in the morning. And still, um, I could never get rid of get past the smell for some reason. I'd done hundreds of autopsies on decomposing bodies, but this event in and of itself. Um, at, at just a molecular level, the odor molecules have kind of bonded with every hair on my body. And in the end, uh, I talk about this this in a chapter of my book called The Mustache. I had, like a lot of us in the 80s, I had one of these large 80s-style mustaches. And um, I wound up having to take every bit of hair off of my body, shave my head, had to shave my mustache, which was kind of a metaphor uh, when I watched the hair kind of fall away into the sink because it, it was representative. My hair suit nature was representative of my manhood. Yeah. Um, and I kind of watched this kind of vanish, and I had shaved my head, and I stood there, and I talk about the book. I talk about in the book how I kind of stood there like a, you know, like a stricken cancer patient, you know, has lost all of the hair. And I thought about, you know, how much death had robbed, robbed from me. And, um, and uh, you know, it's hard for a lot of people to kind of identify with that and see what, you know, have a have a feel for for what it's like to be in that environment, and it's it's rather horrific. But you're not really aware of the horror of it while you're in the middle of it. It's not until you get some distance from that, and you realize that the life that you were living was uh, totally abnormal and totally uh, out of context to what we would norm, what we consider normal human relations. And I know the general public at large hates for people to use terms like normal and abnormal. This this is truly an abnormal life. Humans are not meant to be around death like uh, in the context in which I was in for so long. Yes, I have a question. When you would be doing these um, investigations, would you be wearing yeah. a scrub suit or just regular clothing or what? I would wear I would wear uh, standard uh, clothing like the police wear, uh, you know, like uh, 5'11 pants, which you'll see FBI agents wear many times, uh, a polo shirt, that sort of thing. When I would go into the autopsy room, I'd be in scrubs and have uh, have a Tyvek suit on with a mask and, and gloves. Now, that was later on in my career. When we first started doing autopsies, the only thing we wore was a plastic apron and a pair of Playtex gloves over our hand. We didn't even wear a mask. 
and so it was um, it was it was kind of there were kind of hairy conditions, um, and you know retrospectively it's kind of scary. Did, did you ever uh, have any contact with the family members of these people who you were uh, looking over? Oh yeah, yeah. Contrary to what you see on television, it's not the police department most of the time in larger cities that goes and notifies families. That is a role that's a corner that the medical legal death investigator is specifically trained to do, and I devote a goodly part of my of my work about uh, a goodly part of my book, Blood Beneath My Feet, uh, talking about discussing this this idea of bringing news, bringing this news to family members, going into a total stranger's house. I think over the course of my career, um, I made upwards of 2,000 notifications in, per- in person. So you actually and go so to the door would, and knock on the door, or would you call yes. ahead? No, no. Calling is one of the most inhumane things that you can possibly do, and there are a lot of people out there that do it. And sometimes it's just necessitated. Sometimes family will get wind of it, and they will call in, and you don't have any choice but to tell them. But it's very, very cruel. It's very cool to do that. It's best to do this in person. So you would just knock on the door hoping they would be there? Yes. So and, I would imagine sometimes you would knock on the door and no one was there. Yeah, and sometimes I would knock on the door and hope that they weren't there because I didn't think I could do it one more time. Yeah. Because this is one of those tasks. And probably out of everything that I did in my career, Jonathan, uh, making next of notifications probably took the heaviest toll. Yeah. Uh, I would, uh, because imagine going to a total stranger's house, you know, people that you don't even know, yeah. and just completely strafing them. I mean, just imparting the worst news that you can possibly ever impart to anyone. Um, and I write, you know, extensively about this in, in Blood Beneath My Feet, talk about several uh, several circumstances involving families, one in particular uh, where I had to notify the same family uh, uh, within a two-month period, uh, but within a six-month period, um, and each uh, uh their sons had both died in separate events. And I talk about the effect of that on me as a person yeah. um, and, and what that what that event was like. Um, and uh, the name of that chapter is actually, it's, it's all in how you, no, it's not all, I think it's uh, called, it's all in how you say it. And, um, and it's, uh, it was quite a poignant moment. Uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's never an easy task. It's something that most people want to hem and haw and avoid. But you're called upon to do this task, yes. and you're expected to do it to the best of your ability. Yes. I would imagine that uh, the majority of the people you would uh, meet when you knock on the door and, and let them know what happened to their their son or the daughter, whoever it was, that most of these people would be very grateful to hear from you. No. They were not grateful to hear from me. As a matter of fact, uh, well, well, they're not were... Grateful that, not grateful that they're child or whoever is dead, but uh, yeah. one human being is giving them the, um, what I would say is the prize or the, or the good fortune to have a human being letting them know that you care about them enough to tell them. Yeah, I, I understand. Uh, I think that it, that takes, uh, being told that someone, you, someone that you love is dead, um, that takes so much time to yeah. come to grips with, yeah. that 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 uh, if there is a feeling of gratitude, that doesn't arrive on the scene for, for months afterwards many times. Um, I, there have been many times where, uh, where I was attacked, um, uh, where I had families accuse me of being 
uh, of the perpetrator. Uh, I've been struck in the face. I had one lady that fell to the ground uh, crying out, and she uh, uh, she actually bit me on the ankle. So this could be very uh, dangerous then. Uh, yeah, it can be. Uh, I mean, just keep in mind, this is probably the most, uh, uh, this is probably the single most uh, 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 destructive information you can that one human being can pass on to another human being. You are literally telling that person at that moment in time that their life has changed forever and it will never be the same, period. Yeah. And you can't get past that. So, you can't get past that. Yeah. So, so in your job, were you um, obligated to talk to these people at the door, or were you doing it out of your own uh, will to because you wanted to try to help them some, to some degree? Uh, well, it's part of our training. It's part of our training uh, to do this, and we are obligated. Um, we are obligated to do this, and uh, and uh, we have uh, we have a. Uh, uh, responsibility to do it. I see. Uh, and uh, uh, we would be, uh, how cruel it would be for me to uh, to not uh, to not want to uh, um, to delay in yes. doing it. Uh, nothing is more horrible. Um, uh, nothing could be more horrible than for family to find out on the evening news that uh that this event had taken place. Yes. And so uh you know it's something that we uh that we would uh we would take as a very solemn let's take a very solemn attitude towards yes. uh, uh day in and day out. Uh it's uh uh you never get used to it. You never do. Uh I, you know, I, I can't say that every event that I had in making notification uh people were were downcast over it. I actually had uh, a wife whose husband was uh, uh, chronically unfaithful, and when she found out that her husband had died, she actually began to celebrate right in front of us. Uh, she uh, became very joyful, oh, uh, celebratory, you know, just very happy over the fact. You never, know what kind of, you never know what kind of reaction you're going to get. Uh, yeah. uh, humans are, are interesting animals, that's yeah. for sure. So another question I just thought of, uh, given the part of your job where you're supposed to go to these people's homes and notify them and all, um, how far would you normally have to drive? Because I could imagine you might have a huge territory to have to spend yeah, time driving. Yeah. yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, I'd be willing to drive to the adjacent county in New, in New Orleans, for instance. We would go to the adjacent parish. They don't have counties. Uh, but uh, for for me, uh, I would be willing to drive as far as I could. Now, um uh, with that said, if I wasn't able to go out, say, for instance, I had a death in, uh, of an individual that's from another state, which happens a lot in, in New Orleans. It happens a lot in Atlanta. People come come to these two locations either for vacations or conventions, and people yeah. die. Yeah. Uh, we would find out where the family lives, and we would get in contact with the local police department yeah. or the coroner's department in that location, and we would ask our colleagues on that end if they would be willing to go out and make make a notification to the family. I see. And uh, that way, the problem that I and and uh, I actually had had a friend of mine that uh, knew of someone that had made a notification over the phone, and the woman actually had a cardiac event, yeah. and there was one with her, and that's that's you don't want that on your hands. Yeah. So during the day, how many hours would you actually be doing the uh, medical legal death investigations? 
Uh, well, uh, it, it's an eight-hour shift. Uh, some shifts, it's like being, it's a very reactive kind of uh, kind of uh, occupation yeah. uh, because of the, uh, uh, you know, you can only really spring into action when death occurs. Now, there would always be follow-up investigations that you would have to engage in yeah. because uh, it, it was... Uh, uh, unidentified bodies were always popping up, so you're always working leads to try to get people identified. Right. So if you're busy huge. working eight hours a day doing the medical legal death investigations, and then you have to spend extra time going to people's homes, you had long hour days. Uh, yeah, yeah. You could potentially, you know, put in a 12-hour shift, and then you turn it around and you come back. Or it wouldn't necessarily be just notification. Notification is actually part of your shift if you're. If you're on duty, you catch a call, you go out to the house, and you make a notification. Uh, you know, you could be stuck at work for any number of reasons, yeah. if, particularly if you have uh, a multiple a multiple homicide, or in our case, uh, like when when the Olympics were in Atlanta and we had the Olympic Park bombing, yeah. uh, that was an event that took, uh, you know, several days to actually work. And yeah. you are always on task with that. You, you, yeah. can't, you can't not be there. <laughs> yeah. So uh, prior to your having this this occupation, were you in the military service before? Uh, I was in the, the Army National Guard uh, for a number of years, and that ran concurrent uh, with the period of time that uh, that uh, I joined when I was in high school, and I wound up uh, uh, when my duties with the, with the coroner's office in New Orleans became too overwhelming. Uh-huh. Uh, when it to the point where I had to devote so much of my time, I had to let my uh, let my time elapse with the guard, and I had to say farewell to them. I see. So, um, when you watch, do you like watching detective movies and cop movies where they're shooting up and all, all that stuff? No, I would I'm assume you wouldn't like I'm, it. I'm a dumb and dumber kind of guy. <laughs> what? But I, I have to say, I've had uh, as a result of this book, I've had several people that have, that. Have yeah, I've had just, I've had several people that have made mention that uh, this book reads like like a script, like a Hollywood script, and that wasn't my intention when I wrote it. But I've had a lot of interest relative to that, so we're we're very excited. We're very excited about the tenor of the book and the way it's being re- uh, received. Yeah, I imagine it would be a bestseller because it's very compelling. Uh, we've we've had a lot of action. I'm with a smaller publisher, but a very good publisher, Feral House. Um, I turned down an offer from Doubleday, uh, and because uh, I just I like the way Feral House does business, and they allowed me to tell my story, unlike an, uh, a larger publisher may not have. And it's a story that the public really hasn't seen in the past or heard in the past. Yeah. It's uh, it is the true underbelly of society. Yeah. Okay, we're coming up to the last commercial break, so. Uh... We'll come back. A healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health and Wellness. Legal Shield. Total access. Everyone deserves legal protection. With Legal Shield, everyone can access it, no matter how traumatic or trivial. Check out players.buildinglastingsuccess.com and jjbrower.com. Call Jonathan at 805-535-5111. 
DefeatAnxietyNow.com is geared to help people suffering with anxiety and depression. Intensive, short-term, dynamic psychotherapy helps many people get to the absolute core of their problems and resolve them. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Interested in investing in real estate, leveraging other people's money? Call Jonathan Brower and he can give you some more information. 805-535-5111. That's 805-535-5111. SportsPsychologySociology.com can help you improve your ability to excel and enjoy your athletic endeavors. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Human Behavior, What a Trip with Dr. Jonathan Brower. If you have a question or comment for the show this week, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to jbrowerphd at yahoo.com. Now, back to Human Behavior, What a Trip. Hi, everybody. This is Jonathan Brower with my guest, Joseph Scott Morgan, the author of a relatively new book called Blood Beneath My Feet, The Journey of a Southern Death Investigator. It's a great read, and uh, you might want to check it out. So, Scott, back to what we were talking about. Um, actually, I forget exactly what we, what we were talking about. We can move on anyway. Um, i got a question for you. You bet. Once, once you stopped being... Uh, a medical legal death investigator. How did you, how did the relationship with you and your wife and you with your kids change, if at all? Uh, probably. Well, let me back up and tell you. The last time I left my job was in the back of an ambulance. Um, I headed to a major a major hospital in Atlanta uh, for probably the four months prior to my career ending. Um, I, I had three episodes, I think, where I thought that I was having a heart attack. And, of course, as uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have a keen ear for, for what I'm about to say, yeah. uh, those all turned into panic attacks. That's, yeah, you have uh, anxiety. The, I, I really do. The last, the, last time, uh, the last time that I left the office, uh, uh, I'm thinking I'm having a heart attack, and here I am laying on a sofa in the office, and... Uh, they put out over the loudspeaker, we need all the doctors to report to the investigative area. And here I am, and I'm laying on a sofa, and all of these, uh, the doctors, of course, at the medical examiner's office are all forensic pathologists. Yeah. And here I am, I've come, I've really come to loathe, uh, uh, loathe these people and uh, because of everything that they represent. And here I am thinking that I'm in my last throes of life, and I'm surrounded by them. And, you know, uh, I, I, I kind of joke about this in the book. I look back on it uh, retrospectively, and I think, you know, were these guys looking at me uh, because they were thinking about trying to help me, or were they watching me as like an academic exercise to see what was going to happen as I die? Yes. And I pro- probably the greatest sound I'd ever heard in my life was uh, the sound of 
the ambulance siren. And it took me away from there, and I never went back in the office. As a matter of fact, my wife had to go physically and clean my desk out for me. Uh, when I was in the hospital, a cardiologist saw me. I was in for like three days, and I'd already been seen by a cardiologist. And uh, the guy came in the room, and he said, Mr. Morgan, you know, you, you don't... You don't need a cardiologist. Your heart is fine. They've done all these tests, only stress tests, PET scans, yeah. whole nine yards. Yeah. He said, you need a psychiatrist. And that was something I absolutely positively did not want to hear uh, because I knew that that was coming. Uh, I knew enough about human physiology and about, about what I was enduring, but I never could escape it. Uh, and it took this, this uh, horrible confluence of events to get me to the point where I was driven to my knees to be humble enough. Um, And uh, when I, when, you know, and I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, you don't understand, man. I don't need a psychiatrist. I'm this flaky faced Southern male that can trudge on into the maelstrom. I can handle anything. I have seen so many things that are so horrible. I can deal with this. And it turned out I couldn't deal with it. You know, it, it, it almost claimed me. And I wound up Going to see uh, see a psychiatrist, I was uh, in a state where you know I'd, I'd had the shakes for a long time. Now I was really terrified. I shook every everywhere I went. I looked like uh, I looked like I had some kind of neurological disorder. Yeah. Uh, the 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 lady who was an older lady that was a psychiatrist, she was sitting across the desk from me, and she said, uh, "Mr. Morgan, I have to say that um, out of uh, my all of my years in practice." Uh, you're the worst case of PTSD I have seen since my residency working with Vietnam veterans. Uh-huh. Um, and that kind of shocked me back into a reality of what I was faced with. And then she told me, you know, the final blow was, she said, if, if you decide, if you decide, you have two choices. You either get better under my direction or, uh, or we will, I will have you judicially committed and we will have you hospitalized for an extended period of time. Uh-huh. And I was faced with this. I was like, oh, my God, I can't go back to work. Now, what am I going to do? This is the only thing that I've ever known. Yeah. And I've had all these people telling me I'm so great at it. Yeah. And in the end, I was just kind of stripped bare. And in the end, I was nothing more than just a Joe. That's all I was. I was, I was uh, you know, I was just a person without a country, you know, uh, uh, relative to my occupation, I didn't know what to do with myself, and um, it's a horrible feeling. I mean, it, it really is. But yet, there was this incredible relief that began to kind of uh, invade me. That this peace that came upon me that I'd never had before. Oh, I was able to laugh and smile again, uh, but still, you know, I, I couldn't uh, develop terrible agoraphobia. I could go into into, you know, stores with a lot of people. I couldn't even go to church without having to sit by a door so I could exit the place. And still to this day, I can't, it's hard for me to be in large groups because it just makes me hyperventilate. But things are better than they were, you know, and that's something to be happy about. Good. So uh, overall, is your relationship with your wife and your kids better than it used to be? Absolutely. It's... uh, they're, they are absolutely my rock. Uh, we spend as much time uh, together as we possibly can. And I, I teach college now, and I teach forensic science. And one of the things that I, I tell my uh, people when they ask me, uh, you know, in the end, what did you learn from what you did? And, and uh, the reality is this. I think the thing that I took away 
boots on the job, and this is going to sound very Pollyanna, but the thing that I took away from my job was that I learned, I learned how to hug my family a little bit tighter because yeah. you never, never, you never know when the specter of death is going to come. Yeah. Um, and, um, and you really try to uh, have this real lust for life. You know, you, 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 you want to experience life and enjoy those moments that you have, and I fail at it every day, but I try really hard to, to, to shoot for that goal uh, because life is so very, very short. So um, if, you, if you had had uh, solid parents who were uh, able to be very warm and nurturing, it's very likely you never would have ended up in the occupation you had. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I could, I, I could probably say that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know what else I would have done. You know, and you, you don't necessarily get a, a second chance at it. Uh, God only knows, you know, where I would have wound up. You might have gone, uh, might have gone to medical school. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, you very well might have. Uh, I wound up getting a, a master's degree in forensic science, and, and I'm thankful for that degree because, uh, you know, it's not wasted. My career and my life is okay. not wasted because I'm now... Here. We have to say goodbye. Our time's yeah, up. Sure. It's been great talking with you. I wish we could have a three-hour show. Maybe I'll have Absolutely. you back in time for a second, second Absolutely. half. Absolutely. Okay? I'd love to. Absolutely. Okay, Thank I really you. enjoyed you. I'm going to call you later today or tomorrow anyway. Okay, yeah, give me a call tomorrow. That'll be fine. Okay. Uh, and I uh, have an engagement this evening. Thank you. Okay. It's been a pleasure having well. you. You were great. Be well, Jonathan. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you again for listening today. Tune in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for Human Behavior, What a Trip with Dr. Jonathan Brower on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have fun experiencing your human behavior. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.